if you have your Bible, we're going to be, we're going to read the whole thing this morning. I just didn't have time to prepare a message, so uh, we'll start in Genesis chapter 3. Before I read this, uh, and, and just be ready, because we are going to make our way through several sections of the Old and New Testament this morning, because it's Christmas, right? We've got to talk about that, and I'm very excited about it, but let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time that you've brought us together to worship you, to encourage one another, and to be refreshed in the gospel. We thank you for this time of year when we stop and remember um, that you are faithful to your promises and sent the Savior that had been promised. We ask this morning, as we look in your word, you would help us to mark and inwardly digest what we're reading so that we might walk away this morning with a little bit better sense of the meaning of Christmas and a better attitude about it, especially those who don't think it's important. Uh, Be with their hearts, Lord, those that don't put up nice Christmas trees and (laughs) hang candy canes on it. Help them to realize that they need to repent and recognize the meaning of the season. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Was that passive aggressive? (laughs) Genesis 3. Verse 15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Flip forward to Genesis chapter 12. Most of you were here a couple of months ago when we did the gospel Um, and went back and looked at the fall and how creation was broken and how the promise of Genesis 3.15 was God's immediate response. And and God's immediate response was to promise, look, you broke it, but we're going to fix it. Me, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. So the language is a little vague in Genesis 3.15, and you could blow right past it not realizing that what that is is the promise of the coming Savior. But when God says there's going to be a seed of the woman, a descendant of the woman who's going to bruise the serpent on the head, that's God saying we're going to defeat sin once and for all through a man, through a person. Genesis chapter 12, beginning at verse 1, says, The the Lord now said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Abraham is promised that in him, somehow, all of the people on the face of the planet, one day, are going to experience blessing. Obviously, that wasn't because Abraham himself was going to get them all together and physically bless them. This is pointing forward to something, and I think pointing back to Genesis 3.15. What's important to remember is that the the fall of man and the promises of Genesis 3.15 happens around 4,000 years before Christ. This, this 
instruction from God to Abraham to go out and know that I'm going to make from you all of these people be blessed happens around 2,000 years later, 2,100 years before Christ. Flip forward to chapter 15. Verse 1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to him as righteousness. So this is 2067 B.C. This promise to Abraham is made that he's going to have innumerable descendants. Specifically, he's going to have his own son. It's not going to be an adopted son. It's not going to be some distant relative that all of his possessions will go to. He's going to have his own kid. And it may be hyperbole that God takes Abram out and says, hey, look up at the sky If you can count the stars, that's how many descendants you're going to have. I'm just going to move this back a little bit more. I don't think it's hyperbole, but I do think it's figurative. So think about it like this. For you to be born, two people had to get together. I'm not going to make this uncomfortable for the little kids. Don't worry. Two people had to get together. For them to be born, four people had to pair off. For them to exist, eight people had to pair off. For them to exist, 16 people had to pair off. And if if we just skip a few generations and jump to your seventh great-grandparents, 512 people had to get together in order for you to happen, if we go all the way back that far. And if we skip really far and go to your 18th great-great-grandparents, so that's great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, a million 48,000 people in around 1200 A.D. were busy making you. Odds are we're all kind of related, right? Chances are pretty good. You go back that far, and if you go back even further, that number doubles and then quadruples. So the question then is, all right, how many people physically, genetically have descended from Abraham? And there's two answers out there. The most popular answer is none because Abraham was a fable and didn't really exist. That's the generation we live in. Scholars have decided that this is all made up. The second most popular answer is, and this is a conservative estimate, the number of descendants of Abraham is right around half a billion. The more liberal and probably more realistic estimate is that all of us are genetically associated with Abraham. So did he have a lot of descendants? Physically? I mean, yeah. But then here's another problem. If you go to the bright star encyclopedia or whatever it's called 
right now, if you go outside, like, well, probably in Springfield, but get away from the city lights and light pollution a little bit, there are around 4,000 visible stars at any one time. So you look up the sky, when it's good and dark, you could probably see 4,000 visible stars. That means 9,000 approximately are visible around the whole Earth, but we can only see the half that we can see, right? So I'm going to say, let's be really generous. We'll take out all the light pollution because there was no electricity in Abram's day. So when he walked out of his tent and looked up, let's quadruple the number and say he could see 16,000 stars. He's got a lot more descendants than that, right? So I'm not saying it's, it's absolute. I am saying it's figurative, but I don't think it's hyperbolic. I think when God says, hey, you're going to have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky or grains of sand on the seashore, I think God meant it. But here's the other issue. In Romans 9, verse 6, Paul writes and says, It's not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. So Paul actually cuts the number down and says, just because you're descended of Abraham does not mean that you're a child of God or one of his promised descendants. What he says is, point of fact, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not, uh, this is the Bible, this isn't me talking. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. I have a feeling some of you are getting bored. Um, all right, so we looked at, we look, here's what I'm doing. We looked at Genesis 15 and we saw God say, hey, Abram, go outside and look up the sky. That's how many descendants you're going to have. I want to give you, Abram, hope that you are going to have an heir. And I want to let you know that there's something much bigger than that going on here. So God is pointing back to Genesis 12 when he told Abram, in you, all the inhabitants of the earth are going to be blessed. And that's pointing back to Genesis 3.15, where right after all of creation got broken, God showed up and said, I'm going to fix it. I'm going to redeem it. And what he's doing is he's giving us little glimpses, little broader and broader looks as we work through the scripture of what that looks like. So, so far we know seed of the woman. Then from Genesis 12, we know descendant of Abraham. Then from 15, we know that in him, all these descendants are going to happen. So the way I think about this is it's like we, we don't have a Christmas tree here, but maybe next year we will. At home, I hope you all have Christmas trees. I know, I know you, you probably don't. Do you guys have Christmas trees? You do. Okay, Riley's fixed that. That's good. Uh, <clears throat> As you get closer to Christmas in my house, what happens is there are, like, we'll start off with the three or four gifts that we've already purchased, and those get wrapped and get put under the tree. Or Grandma and Grandpa in Florida will send a box of gifts, and those get opened up and put under the tree. And then as we start buying more things and getting them wrapped, we put those on. So there's this accumulation of gifts over the course of time under the tree. And the kids, when they were younger, and we, when we were kids, as you, you start out and you look at this box that's wrapped in paper and you cannot know what it is because it's all covered up, right? So when nobody's looking, you go over and, and just touch it and see how firm is the box. Is this a shipping box or is it a, is it a clothes box? You can kind of tell if it's real bendy and by the shape, right? 
And then eventually, when nobody's looking, you'll pick it up and heft it and see how heavy it is. And I think in measure, that's what's going on in the scriptures. God starts out with, look, there's a gift. Genesis 3.15. Genesis 12, you get a sense of the weight. Genesis 15, you get a sense of like what might be in there by shaking it. And as you go through the scriptures, the anticipation of this redeemer is building. Right. So let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. I forgot to mark this one, so you all have lots of time to find it. Second Samuel 7, verse 12. This is God promising things to David, all right? King David, when your days are fulfilled, 2 Samuel 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, so when you die, David, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So a thousand years before Christ now, God gives us a little bit more information. He says it to David, but it's in the word of God for us. This is going to be a descendant of David. It's going to be a king. We didn't know that before. And it's going to be a son of God. We didn't know that before. So we're getting more and more of a picture of who this is. And I'll just tell you right right now, it's not Solomon and it's not Josiah. It's not one of these kings that immediately follows in 1 Kings or 2 Kings or Chronicles. It's somebody else, but let's just keep going. Isaiah chapter 7. Now we'll get into the more familiar verses. Isaiah 7 verse 14. Are you all with me? All right. Six of you are. That's great. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. So this is 735 years before Christ. We're getting closer. Isaiah gives this prophecy that tells us Messiah, the promised one, who's going to be a king, who's going to be a son of David. Messiah will be born of a virgin and called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Everybody knows that. He won't be wealthy because curds and honey is peasant food. That's not something a king would eat. He's going to know how to choose good over evil, though. Interesting thing for the son of David, Abram, right? These are, these are the forefathers of the Messiah. Abram, like, routinely sold out his wife to save his own skin. David liked other people's wives and murdered their husbands. 
And the promise is, in Isaiah, 735 years before Christ, the Messiah is going to know how to choose good. Born of a virgin, king of kings. Let's keep going. It gets better. I think the anticipation should really be building right about now if you're an Old Testament believer. Isaiah 9. Verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way by the sea or of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government shall be on his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So this is 730 years before Christ. And Isaiah prophesies that the coming Messiah will come from the northern part of Israel. This may be absolutely insignificant to us, being that many of us have come from Nebraska, right? But the northern part of Israel after Solomon becomes king, immediately moves into rebellion. For most of the Old Testament, the only thing close to resembling a faithful people of God is the southern part of of Israel, two tribes. The other ten bail out. And they're basically eviscerated by halfway through 2 Kings. There's nothing good that comes from north of Jerusalem in Israel historically. And what Isaiah is telling the wicked king Ahaz is, even though the Assyrians and the Babylonians and all your trouble, troublesome countries around you tend to invade you through the north, and the, the north is the place where when soldiers are coming in to take over Jerusalem, they march through, and when they're fleeing out of Jerusalem, they march through. The north is the place that gets raped and pillaged and treated like a redhead stepchild. Even though that's the case, Messiah himself will be born in the north country, and if you look at a map, guess where Bethlehem is, and guess where Nazareth is. Guess where Jesus did most of his ministry? Galilee by the sea, northern Israel. 730 years before he ever came. Isaiah's talking about this stuff like it's already happened. Anticipation is building for the coming Messiah. It's getting more and more tangible. It's getting more and more clear. And now we learn... His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These are titles that belong to God. So what we learn from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Isaiah chapter 9 is that it is going to be God in the flesh who comes and redeems mankind. And his government will never end. It gets more specific if we keep going. 
Look at Isaiah 53. I hope I'm going fast enough. I tell you what, I'm going to work through this in chunks. Isaiah 53, 1. Who has believed what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, he's going to talk about Jesus in past tense. As though this thing is such a foregone conclusion, it's already happened. So pay attention. He grew up before him. That's Jesus grew up before the Father. Like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Unlike the Roman Catholic pictures of Jesus and all of their iconography, where this marvelously handsome bearded white man is pictured, Jesus was nothing to look at. Gives people like me a little bit of comfort, right? Like, it's not all about the physical appearance. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Let me just read you some verses. This is Luke 19, 41. When Jesus drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. So this is the Son of God. King of Kings, as he's approaching Jerusalem, weeps over it. Why? Because they're rejecting him. Because he was despised and rejected. Had no stately form of majesty that anybody should be interested in him. John eleven thirty five. 35, every kid's favorite scripture memory verse. Jesus wept. And this happens when he approaches Mary and Martha after the death of Lazarus, while he's on his way to bring Lazarus back to life, there's this moment in time where Jesus, in his humanity, condescends to weep as though there's no one that can do anything about Lazarus being dead. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Like he knows how you feel when your guts are coming out and you're broken. And you feel like there's no hope. We don't have a king and a Messiah promised to us and delivered to us who doesn't get what it's like to be a human and struggle and suffer. Thank God for that. Luke 23, verse 8, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he'd heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign be done by him. So he questioned him at length, but Jesus made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. Herod and his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then, arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. Isaiah 53, 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Listen to Matthew 27, 26. Then he released for them Barabbas, that's Pilate. Having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. 
When the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, they gathered the whole battalion before him. So this is after he's been beaten with a scourge. So there's a lot of bleeding already going on in the Son of God. They take him before Pilate and the whole company, the whole garrison of the Roman cohort is standing before him. They stripped him and put on his back a scarlet robe and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. In John 19, 33 and 34, it says, when they came to Jesus hanging on the cross, they saw that he was already dead. So they did not break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. And at once there came out blood and water. So he's, he's beaten for our sins. He's wounded so that we could be healed. This is the promised redeemer of Genesis 3.15. And then he was pierced so that we could be cleansed. Remember, Isaiah 53 is 700 years before the birth of Christ. And no scholar debates that. That this was written long before the historical man Jesus walked on the face of the earth. Verse 6, Isaiah 53. Oh, we should feel this right about now. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that has led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Listen to Matthew 27, 11. Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, are you king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Do, I mean, think about this. Every time Jesus got into it with the Pharisees, my favorite one being, bring me a coin. Whose likeness is on this coin? Because they want to know, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus says, whose likeness is on the coin? And they say, Caesar's. And he says, render unto Caesar what's Caesar's and unto God what's God's. He could have eviscerated these men before the governor. He could have said exactly what was necessary to vindicate himself, deliver himself from death, but he stands there silent for you and for me. By oppression and judgment, this is Isaiah 53, 8, he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, he was taken away under false accusations, killed for no crime whatsoever. Verse 9, they made his grave with the wicked. He was with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Matthew 27 goes on to describe Jesus being crucified between two robbers who along with the crowd, when they are taking breaths on their own crosses, choose to insult and malign Christ along with everybody else. Wicked men. He was with wicked men in his death. But after Jesus dies, 
Both in Matthew and in John, it says that Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, comes and asks Pilate for the body of Christ and takes him down and gives him a proper burial before the Feast of Pentecost begins. He was with a rich man and his death 700 years before any of that happened. Isaiah is telling us it happened like it happened. 53.10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Understand that these things happened because it was the Father's desire to redeem us. Get out of your mind this picture that God is up in heaven enthroned on high, really disappointed with you. And Jesus went, I think I can handle this. Dad, let me go die for them. And God said, okay, well, if you'll die for them, I'll tolerate them. No, no, no. It was the heart of the Father to give his own Son to redeem you. That's the Messiah who was promised. The Father will look on the anguish of the soul of Jesus Christ and be satisfied. His wrath will be satisfied. Who do you think Isaiah 53 is about? So you got Genesis 3.15. Messianic promise. Genesis 12, Messianic promise. Genesis 15, Messianic promise. 2 Samuel 7, Messianic promise. Isaiah 7, Messianic promise. Isaiah 9, Messianic promise. Isaiah 53, detailed description of the suffering Savior. So the closer we get, the more of a picture we get of exactly what this is going to look like until we come to the point where it's all over with. Acts 13, 32 We bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God for his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and most certainly decayed. But when he whom God raised up He was raised up to not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The anticipation that builds as we approach Christmas, if you're not a Scrooge, the anticipation that builds as we get closer, eyeballing those gifts as they accumulate under the tree. If you're like me, trying and sometimes failing to resist the urge to just give your wife what you got her early because you want her to see it so much. Or getting excited about the kids opening their gifts, looking forward. Maybe you're just looking forward to time with family. It's a special morning when everybody doesn't just get up and go to work, but everybody maybe gets up and gets together and spends time together because you have to. Maybe you're looking forward to a meal. But this anticipation 
I think is a mirror of the anticipation that's building all through the Old Testament as the people of God wait for the promised Redeemer who's going to come. That's how we should think about this. So if you don't have a tree and you don't do presents, you're missing out because it's a perfect painting of what all of the Bible is describing leading up to the advent of the Son of God. That's why I love Christmas. Not because you get new stuff, but because this anticipation is constantly building. 4,000 years it builds until Messiah comes. Now, let's have story time. When Kate was, I think, six or seven, she might have even been younger than that, was the first and the only time one of the kids did this. We got all done. All the presents are open. I mean, there's stacks of toys like a hoarder house (laughs) and trash, wrapping paper and ribbons all over in our tiny little living room. And the words came out of her mouth. That's it. (laughs) Now, I've gotten to know Kate better over the years, and I think I know what her heart actually was in them at the time. When you're a good Reformed Christian parent who's homeschooling, you failed when your kid says that after all the presents are open, right? Meanwhile, this one is breaking things and yelling at us because they're broken, and he's just in heaven, right? But she said, that's it, not because she wasn't satisfied or happy with all that she had been given, but because she was experiencing really in its fullness for the first time, what we all experience when you get done opening all the gifts. It's like the anticipation was far greater than the event itself. All of us know that. And so the grizzled Christmas veterans among us have figured out a way to defeat it. They just don't care. Christmas is stupid. It's not even in the Bible. I'm not putting up a tree. Bah humba. Right? Well, let me take you to the cross right now. On the cross hangs the son of David, the promised Messiah. And he says out loud, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says, it's finished. And he breathes his last. And he gives up his life. Where are his disciples? They've fled with the noticeable, notable exception of John and the women. I, I just think this needs to be pointed out. This is a massive tangential side note. But women, don't you ever think for a minute that you are not immensely valuable in the kingdom of God and in the church of Christ because it was the women who were constantly there tending his needs. It was the men who fled. But they were still there watching Mary, watching her son die. The other Mary who had been redeemed from prostitution by him standing there watching every tormented moment. Where are his disciples? They're gone. And he's dead. Who's going to do miracles now? 
Who's going to feed people now? Who's going to heal people now? Who's going to give sight to the blind now? Who's going to give hearing to the deaf now? Who's going to help people walk that couldn't walk? Who's going to feed these crowds that had gathered? Who's going to take the Pharisees on? He's dead. It's over. He just breathed his last. And anybody who's still standing there goes, that's it? And it's the same thing we experience every year at Christmas when the last scrap of wrapping paper hits the floor. There's a part of us that goes, oh man, that's it. Except for those of you who, you know, don't do Christmas. It's a picture of exactly what happened when Messiah came. But there's really, really good news. That's not it. Because that dead man hanging on that cross three days later got up again. Victorious over our sin. Accomplishing everything that God said he was going to accomplish from Genesis 3.15 to the moment he climbs out of Joseph's tomb. He did it. That's it. And then he ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of God, having finished the work. And now, anticipation builds in my heart every year that I get older, every year we have more Christmas presents, every year we go through this whole routine of having pies and candies and prime rib, I think is what we're doing, or turkey or ham, like whatever you do. Every year we do this, the anticipation builds in my heart a little bit because I know my Redeemer lives and he, the same one who said 4,000 years ago, or six in our case, I'm coming, has said, I'm coming again. And we're looking forward to that day when the advent occurs forever. And we're taken up with him to glory. And there's a new heavens and a new earth. And all of creation is finally redeemed. That's why we do this Christmas thing. And if you don't do it, you're missing out. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.